We finished last week our study in 1 Thessalonians, so we're starting something new. Today is not a traditional sermon, more of an introduction to the things we'll be covering in the weeks to come, and we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Let me pray for us as an expression of our dependency. Father, we always need you, and we're asking for you to work as your word is taught. Would its message come to us clearly, and would we be able to think about the ways that we can apply it in our own life and in our church. Thank you for the gift of being around brothers and sisters. We ask again for the grace upon those who can't be with us today. And we ask that as a whole, you're helping our church be stronger and more effective in the mission you've given us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe about a month ago now, I was talking to some of the members here about an instance where I felt a very distinct awareness of my responsibility as an elder to protect the church. It was a few years back when a couple men came to visit the church during the week, so they stopped by the building. These men were here on behalf of an organization, and prior to meeting with them, I had had several visits People stopping by the office, wanting to meet with the pastor, phone calls as well. They were very persistent. And eventually I said, okay, I'll sit down. I got about 20 minutes and two younger men came. These men represented an international Christian ministry. They had very professional, colorful handouts. Seemed very devoted to their organization. And they spoke about how they might connect with me and even with our church one of the opportunities they presented was for me to become part of their pastoral network. This network, I was told, was intended to train pastors to help them in their own ministries. And they showed me photos. Look, here's the types of trainings we can offer you. And it had all these photos of pastors across all different types of uh, Christian teaching. Some photos of the men were, were of men that I would agree with. Uh, some I, others I would not agree with. But before I met with them, I had begun to do some research, had some conversations even with other pastors, and realized that they had the same groups showing up around certain seasons of the year. And in reading online as well, and listening to a sermon, got to grow a little suspicious about the group. They had biblical language. They had a very generic faith statement on their website. But the things they, is very uh, devoted to their, their leader in, in a different country, and the sermons there, the things he would say, again, use biblical language, but what he would say about sin and repentance just didn't line up with the way the Bible presented those issues. Again, the guys I talked with were extraordinarily persistent. And as we talked, they kept asking about my contact information. You know, can you give us your email? Give us your, your, your cell phone. We're willing to connect with you. And I was not willing to share that at the time. They also started to ask me questions about what we teach at the church. And every time, they asked me where I went to seminary, and for every answer I gave, they were very affirming. Yes, yes, yeah, that's great. You know, we're the, we're the same. So they talked to me about their pastoral network, and then they asked me about midweek services. Do you, do you have anything here during the week? And I said, no, we don't have midweek services. We have groups that meet around the communities in various members' homes throughout the week. And one of them said something like, oh, that's, that's wonderful. You know, we would love to be able to help those groups. We, we could even send teachers to each of those groups and, and support them. And that immediately set up some, some red flags. I, I, I think rightfully so, felt very territorial. And I knew I was not going to give them any information regarding groups 
uh, during the week in our homes, I thought, what kind of group would, would come from the outside and in the first meeting begin to pressure me to allow them to visit the homes of my members? If you're less cynical, you might say, well, they might have had a strong desire to support pastors who were alone or maybe weary, maybe the strong desire to help uh, equip the saints who might be underdeveloped, but that is not how I saw it. Our time ended very shortly after that, and, and they left. I had no intention of reaching out to them again, but that has not stopped them on occasion from calling the church and visiting the church and pushing some programs that they offer. My interaction with them really strengthened my conviction that we have, as elders, a duty to protect and to guard the flock that God has placed in our care. That is an essential aspect of spiritual leadership. We are to give spiritual protection, just like a parent protects his or her child from the things in the world. Pastors are to protect their church from the things that would distract us from Christ. You get a feeling for that all through the scriptures, but one specific location, and I'd like you to turn there today, is Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're going to read a, a time when the Apostle Paul sat down with the elders from the church of Ephesus. He's not in Ephesus, he's at a, another city called Miletus, but he's in his missionary journey, he's on his way to Jerusalem, he is going to be arrested in Jerusalem, but he wanted to meet with the elders before he got there. This was likely his final interaction with them. At least that's what he indicates as he talks to them. Acts chapter 20, look at with me at verse 25. This is just part of what Paul says to them. Acts 20, 25, Paul says, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, none of you will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I'm not going to be responsible. I've done what I can do to give you the word of God. You have everything you need. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Very, very strong words there. Pay attention. Be alert. Even though Paul poured his life and his, into, into this ministry, even though the teachings of Christ was given to them, he understood that there would always be threats to the church. The church was never safe from the possibility of false teachers coming in from outside or arising from within the church. So, what is his strategy for protecting the church? His primary strategy was to develop in each church a qualified and trained group of men who would lead the church and he would structure the church. In, in, in that way, the more organized the church was, the more protected it would be. 
Five years after speaking with the elders of this church, Paul wrote a letter to the entire church, and that's the letter we know as Ephesians. In that letter, you see the same desire. Paul wants to clarify the truth, and he wants to call the people to live in light of that truth. About four or five years after writing that letter, Paul wrote another letter to the church, and this time it wasn't addressed to the whole church, although they would eventually hear it. It was addressed to one man who was Paul's uh, son, he says, in the faith. He was his representative as an apostle, and that was Timothy. So you have 1 Timothy, and a few years later came 2 Timothy. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. And like I said, this sermon is not gonna be sermon proper. Those of you who take notes, you're waiting for an outline, just take notes on whatever you like. We're gonna be kind of moving through different topics. First Timothy. We're gonna be in First Timothy for the next few weeks, not at the same detail and not in the same pattern we were in for First Thessalonians, but we're gonna talk about various topics related to the way a church ought to be structured or organized not digging into every verse, but instead highlighting some specific passages that I think are important for us and to understand about church structure. We're also gonna discuss some, some specific changes that we as elders are trying to implement or promote here at our church, and we'll talk about that when we get there. For today, just as an introduction to these topics, I simply want to underscore the idea that a well-structured church serves as a blessing to that church for its protection and for its health, for, for its mission. If the church is structured well, they will be protected from error and they will be made more effective in its mission. The main passage for th- First Timothy, the, 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 the primary verse, it comes to us in chapter three. You can look right almost to the middle of the letter. First Timothy chapter three, verses 14 and 15. This is Paul's heart. You'd call this the purpose statement of the letter. Here's Paul's motivation for writing. 1 Timothy 3, 14. He says, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of the truth. So Paul is not in Ephesus physically at this time, but Timothy's there, he's helping to lead the church, he's Paul's representative, and he has been charged with making sure the church lives up to its nature. To use Paul's words in verse 15, Paul wants the church to know how they should behave. He wants to know how they should, he wants them to know how they should conduct themselves. Individually, the people need to know how to live. Corporately, the church needs to know how to structure itself. First Timothy, you could say then, is an instruction manual for the church. It, it's God's prescription for how the church ought to be organized. And here in verse 15, Paul gives two illustrations or metaphors concerning the church. And these are important because they help address some things that are subtle in our heart. We push against these things. We're always in danger of forgetting these things. What we have in our heart is an aversion to orderliness and to organization. Some of you would admit openly, you're not a neat person. Look at your desk, look at your bedroom. I'm not a neat person. Ask your wife if that's you or your husband. You'll know. Others of you are more organized. You're neat. Things are in their place. Even if you're the more organized type of person, you have to recognize that that is not how you came into this world. You were taught that. You learned it. 
Ask most parents. They will confirm to you. If a kid has five toys, he doesn't play with one and then go put it away and then bring out the next one and then put that one away. He brings out the next one. And at the end of the day, you got five toys on the floor. You have to teach children to fold their socks and to fold their clothing and to place them in the drawers. My mom tried that with me. Well, that type of organization is, it's not as, as always specific, but God has given us order and structure. And the first illustration Paul gives concerning the church is that the church is a household. That's what he says in verse 15. I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The Greek word that is oikos or oikos. Literally, the word just means house, but here it's a reference not to a building, but to a family. Every family needs structure. There are assignments in families. There are roles. There are responsibilities and there are expectations. And that's the way it is with the church as well. God intends his people to come together and to gather as a family. And in that family, there will be roles. There will be authority. There will be expectations. There are people who go through life saying, no, I'm a Christian and have zero connection to a local church. John Stott referred to that quote as a grotesque anomaly. Really strong words. A grotesque anomaly. This is not God's design for a Christian to be isolated from the church. And yet there have been and will continue to be people who say things like, well, I believe in Jesus. I, I serve Jesus. I just, I don't like organized religion. Maybe you've heard people say that. I don't like organized religion. It's been taken over. It's, too, it, it's not free enough for me. And there's a problem with that because the God of Scripture is a God of order and a God of structure. You can see that very clearly in the Old Testament. God has a very organized way of laying out the tribes. He says, when you're going to march through the desert, here's how you go. They go first, you go second, you go third, and you go all the tribes. Exactly in order. He gives them the chapters that are tough to read in Exodus, Leviticus, all the rules for this is how the tabernacle is supposed to be. And then when you read it in the middle of Exodus, he, that's all, it's Moses giving all the instruction. Then you read the last few chapters of Exodus and it's all repeated because Moses is coming through with the checklist going, yep, 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 10 rings for this and poles for this and they're covered in gold and on and on. God told them exactly how they are to worship. It was all very organized, structured. Leviticus, here's how to do this sacrifice, the sin offering, the burn offering. Here's the part of the animal you burn. Here's the part of the animal you keep. All organized. Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, decided they were going to worship God their own way with strange fire. And God killed them. We serve a God of order. There's a way things are to be done. Now you come to the New Testament and you don't see that same amount of detail. There are no rules in the New Testament regarding what our buildings should look like or what time we're supposed to meet. But there are some important features and structures and guidelines for local churches and we find them here in the book of 1 Timothy. We never want to add to scripture but we definitely don't want to take away as well. These are the types of topics we'll be discussing in, in the weeks to come. But again, we have to recognize our bent is away from structure. We, I think, theoretically say we like rules. We like responsibilities. We like when everything is structured. You play football. Everybody has a role when the play starts. You go to work. You have your job. You have your job. And everyone likes that in theory until you don't feel like doing your job. Our sinful nature is going to push us away from doing what we're supposed to be doing. We, we like structure to know that everything's organized until we realize we're held to the same standard as everybody else. 
We're going to be tempted either not to fulfill the responsibilities we've been given or to do things that are outside our responsibility. We've seen this happen ever since the beginning of sin. Adam was created first. He was given instructions by God even before Eve was created. That very first day, he was told where he could eat and what he would not eat from. And he would have been responsible as a husband to communicate that. And he was charged to lead his wife to protect her. And instead, when you read Genesis 3, you have Eve talking to Satan at the end. She, she's convinced of what he's saying. She takes of the fruit and she, and she eats it. And then it says, and then she gave to her husband who was, you guys know what that says in Genesis 3? He was with her. So it's like the whole time the movie scene is on her and the snake and oh, look what's happening. And then she falls victim to this deception and then the camera pans out and Adam's been standing there the whole time. He did not do what he's supposed to be doing as her husband. Didn't say anything. Later, when God pronounces the curse on the man and the woman, we find that the woman's going to battle this, this, um, this design as well. Instead of having a heart of submission, she's going to have a desire that is ESV translates it as contrary to her husband. It's a desire to rule over him. She's going to want to step outside the boundaries and the design that God has set in place. This is, this is what it is to live now in the curse. We push against. We don't want to do what we're supposed to be doing. And we don't want to, and we want to do the things we're not supposed to be doing. And that, that same kind of things happen in the church. We get lazy. Leaders get lazy. Those who should not be in leadership want to usurp that position, step into that position. You see that in the New Testament. What works against orderliness and structure is our personal desire for freedom, for autonomy, for independence. We would rather do things our own way. And there are places where we have freedom to do that in Christ, but there are places where we don't. So it's always important to remember that God has, you could say, some house rules. He wants his household run a certain way. And the features that he has given us are not arbitrary. God has a purpose for them. The church has been placed in this world to reflect the heart of Christ and to proclaim the message of Christ. The church is intended by Christ as it obeys him to be effective in reaching new people and in sanctifying the people with the same truth. And this leads us to the second metaphor that Paul uses in verse 15. The church is not only a household it is, he says, a pillar and a buttress or a pillar and support. This speaks of, this is an architectural uh, analogy. Greek architecture at the time had many pillars, many columns. Some people think Paul may have even point, been pointing to a great temple to Artemis or Diana at the time. If you've seen Roman or Greek uh, architecture, there are pillars. Uh, much of that has influenced us. You look at the White House, it's got pillars, columns, and then they've got uh, uh, those triangular pediments on top. This is what columns did. They, they held up the roof. They portrayed the art that was on display for the people. And just like those pillars hold up the decorative roof, the church of God has been placed here to hold something up. We're here to put something on display. We are the pillar and buttress or support of the truth. We're here to protect the truth and we're here to proclaim the truth. That's what the church does. What this world needs from the church is to hear the truth. And the church will be helped in that function as it honors the structures that God has put in place. 
go back with me to the opening verses of the letter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. You have Paul's customary introduction. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Verse 2, he's writing to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are, those are common, regular introductions, a lot of truth there. But then you get to verse 3, and Paul jumps right into what he wants Timothy to do. Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's what Paul told Timothy to do. I got to move on. You're going to stay here and you're going to make sure that false teaching is not affecting this church. And based on the way Paul says it, it seems like the false teachers are already there. And Paul may even know them by name. We'll get to verse 19 and 20 where he names a couple men. They've abandoned the teaching of Christ. Put an end to this. The heart of Paul and the responsibility of Timothy is to defend the church from error. Now, we know there's a difference between biblical error or heresy and disagreements. There are going to be doctrinal issues that churches disagree about. They've got to make decisions about these things. But false teaching is that which confronts the gospel and that which distorts the structure of God. It, it, it weakens a church. That's the problem. Can't we all just, you know, hold hands, get along, just ignore the differences? Well, there are some things we need to, in love, just accept, but there are some things we can't. Verse four explains why this is such a big deal. Teach these people not to teach any different doctrine, don't teach anything that strays from scripture, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, because these things, he says, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. These things detract and hinder God's plan for the church. God has an order, he has a purpose in his household, and false teaching works against it. Down in verse six, Paul says the false teaching also leads to vain discussion. So speculations, vain discussion. In other words, these things are wastes of time. They lead to nothing productive. If your boss comes into your office and you're sitting there on your phone, you would think, well, what does it matter to my boss? I can do whatever I want. It's no big deal. And your boss says, no, you're here to do a certain work. That's what it is with false doctrine. Well, who cares? We think about things. We're just having fun discussions. Yeah, we waste a lot of time on this, but it's okay. No, it distracts us from what God has put us here to do. These things work against God's heart and against God's purposes. In verse five, you have the positively, the positive statement of what, The goal is, verse five, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Those are the things that false teaching will erode. When false teaching begins to take root, you will not see the love of Christ on display. You will not see the purity and the holiness of Christ and you will not see sincere faith being lived out. In other words, a church that allows false teaching to develop will misrepresent God and eventually will become powerless in its mission. That's why doctrine matters. That's why God wants his church structured according to the guidelines he has given. Having a church that's well-structured, well-ordered is how we corporately fight against Satan and the demons. 
If we honor God, if we honor his design, we're working for the mission of God. Where we dishonor God, we will be used by Satan. And I don't say that as an exaggeration. I don't say that as a scare tactic. I say that because that's what Paul goes on to say. Jump down to verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Timothy, this charge I entrust to you. Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you wage the good warfare. He had already been affirmed by the church there as a teacher. He says, you got to fight. There's a war going on. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, faith, speaking of the, the, the content of faith, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul specifically names two of the men who have wandered from the truth. He says they've been handed over to Satan. Skip over to chapter four. First Timothy chapter four. Again, we see Paul make a reference to demonic activity. First Timothy 4.1, Paul says, now the spirit explicitly, say, expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Halloween is coming soon, even though we've got Christmas decorations already in the store. But Halloween is coming soon, and that is a time of year when some begin to talk about all these things connected to the occult and Satanism and demonic activity. There is definitely demonic activity in the occult, things like psychics and speaking to the dead and those kinds of things. But we never want to limit demonic activity simply to those things. The primary work of Satan and his demons is the promotion of lies. That's verse four. Sorry, that's verse one of chapter four. He says, these are deceitful spirits and teachings or doctrines of demons. The church is charged by God to hold up truth and holiness. Satan, on the other hand, holds up lies and sin. And the worst kind of lies will be the lies that a church permits and eventually begins to promote, thinking they're doing the work of God. What happens when a church that belongs to Christ begins to tolerate sin and then eventually to affirm it? What's the result? At a minimum, people who are saved are going to have their spiritual growth hampered. Worse, you have people who would then begin to claim Christ and be affirmed in their salvation when in fact they're headed for judgment. Jesus said that about the Pharisees. He said, you're blind guides leading the blind. You make sons of hell. That's what happens for churches, for example, that begin to merge the mission of Christ with, with political agendas. People go out and say, I did my political job. I'm doing God's work. And you go, that's not God's work. There will be parts of our faith that affect politics, but that is to be sidetracked from what Christ has called us to do. What happens when a church or denomination begins to think, no, we need to be loving, we need to be affirming, and so they affirm the LGBTQ lifestyle. That's not loving. That is to set people up for eternal condemnation. If we don't declare sin as sin, then people don't see the need to repent. And if people don't repent from sin, they will not be saved. 
So what's the solution? Churches today that you look at and you know they're far from Christ. They, they weren't there 100 years ago. Where's our church going to be in 100 years, in 30 years? How do you keep a church from drifting? What's the solution? How do you stay strong? How do you stay useful to Christ? The answer is simple. You cling to the word of God. You teach the word of God. You go back and you rehearse, repeat the word of God. Everything we need is, is right here. The question is if we use it or not. Are we continuing to come back to the word of God? Look at chapter four with me, verse six. This is Paul's exhortation to Timothy. He's working to protect the church. Chapter four, verse six, he says, if you put these things, the things he's been teaching about, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. See, you have Paul telling Timothy, hey, Timothy, you need to train yourself. You need to train the people. You need to train for battle. And it's not just a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual training the people always need. In verse 11, Paul says, command and teach these things. Let no, Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You can hear Paul saying, Timothy, it doesn't matter if you're younger than those other guys. It doesn't matter if you're not as polished in the way that you speak. It doesn't matter, Timothy, if you have a more gentle disposition. Lead the people and teach them the word of God. And Paul continues in verse 14. He's trying to encourage, strengthen this young man. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. You've been affirmed in this gift. You are a teacher. Use that gift. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Literally, I think it, it, the Greek is be in them so that all may see your progress. And then verse 16, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Sounds a lot like what Paul said to the elders at Ephesus. Keep watch on yourself. Keep watch on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here's Paul saying, Timothy, people's eternal destiny is at stake. Do your job. Give people the word of God night and day. Model it for them. Teach it to them. This is how the church will be protected. This is your sacred duty. This is the message of 1 Timothy. The church is the household of God and it needs to be put in order in accordance with the word of God. When that happens, the church is going to be strengthened and the church is going to be more effective in its purpose. We're going to cover a variety of topics as we choose some passages from this, from this letter. And we're going to cover things that other churches disagree with. Sometimes those disagreements are rooted in tradition. A church might have never been exposed to what the Bible says. They do things simply because that's the way I've seen it done before. 
I didn't even know the Bible talked about it. That's unfortunate, and we can be here to, to teach and encourage. Other times, there are churches that know what the Bible says, but over time, they begin to adjust to what the Bible says. You know, I think if we do it this way, we'll be more effective with, with the culture. We're more acceptable. And a church like that, sadly, is adjusting to the culture. They think that's the better way to go, but really, they're not honoring Christ, and they're working against his mission. The worst case would be those so-called churches that openly reject what the Bible says. That is to set a church on a dangerous trajectory. If that is not corrected soon, this church will, those types of churches will fall away from Christ and they will call themselves a church, but they will be leading people to hell. And that's why Paul uses very strong language in this letter regarding false teachers. Paul we read Thessalonians. He loved people. He, he's a spiritual father to these people. He's gentle among them. And yet he has very strong language for false teachers because he knows they are a cancer to the life of the church. They, they threaten its very life. Jump over with me to chapter 6. Last chapter of the, of the letter, 1 Timothy chapter 6. It probably has a paragraph break. If you start at the end of verse two, it says, teach and urge these things. He continues, verse three, if anyone does not, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So you have a picture, maybe it fills in the picture a little bit. These false teachers are coming in not to honor Christ but to make money. So they're willing to adjust what God has said about the church because it works out better for them. Paul says, no, those who reject the guidelines and the structure that God has put in place, they are arrogant, they are foolish, they are dangerous, they are evil, they're depraved, and they're ignorant. They warp the beautiful picture and function that God has created. What a good reminder this is because there are times where we're tempted to think, you know, what's the big deal? They're doctrinal disagreements. Paul even said it to the Philippians, you know, they have a bad motive as long as Christ is preached. And, And there's some truth there. When a church preaches the true gospel, we we praise God that the true gospel is preached, but the Great Commission is to go make disciples and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. We want people, Paul said, my goal is not just to see people saved, it's to present them mature in Christ. So we can remind ourselves, you know, when someone looks and goes, you guys are making big deals out of little things. The question is, do we make a big deal about the word of God? Paul speaks with seriousness concerning those who stray from the truth because he knows to stray from God's design is to set a church on a trajectory to death. It doesn't matter how big a church gets. It doesn't matter how much the world praises a church. If that church doesn't honor Christ, it is not being faithful, and it is not being successful in the eyes of God. I want to wrap up our time by having us turn to Christ's final message directly aimed at the Ephesians. Remember, Paul showed up, he preached there, church was started, he's there. Sometime later, he writes them a letter. Oh, sometime later, he spoke to the elders in Acts 20. Sometime five years or so after that, he writes them the letter of Ephesians. 
After that, he wrote two more letters to Timothy, who was a leader there at the church of Ephesus. But Christ's final letter to the church in Ephesus came 30 years later, after his letters to Timothy. By God's grace, the church was still there, but the battle never ended. There were always going to be external enemies, and there was always internally going to be the temptation to sit back and just leave it alone. There's always going to be in our hearts and in a church a tendency toward laziness and a drift away from Christ. Christ's final message to the church of Ephesus comes in Revelation chapter two. You can turn there if you like. I'll read it for us. Ephesus is the first church mentioned. Christ dictates a message to them through the apostle John. Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. It says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's that's a description of Christ. Verse two, Christ says to the church, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. I know that. Verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Verse six, he says back to the positive, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That short letter gives us some important reminders. It reminds us that Christ is always watching over his churches. He sees what we're doing. He sees what we're doing well. And he sees where we've compromised. He sees when a church begins to drift away from him. And positively, in the mercy of Christ, he calls churches to repentance so that they can be restored to joy and effectiveness But there's also a reminder here that no church is indispensable to Christ's mission in the world. Even the church of Ephesus, even the church that Paul planted, even the church where Timothy ministered is not necessary from a theological sense for the work of God. That's what he means when he says, if you don't do this, I'll come and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When a church stops honoring Christ, when a church begins to compromise the design that God has clearly laid out, Christ will no longer extend his blessing. Eventually, that church will no longer be used to shine the light of Christ in a dark world. We should pray that God would keep that from happening here at First Bilingual. And we should pray that he would sustain us so that we continue to minister to our communities all the way until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, you're aware of our 
hearts toward independence and away from structure. We don't always like to obligate ourselves. We want to keep our options open. We want freedom and independence and autonomy. But you're gracious. You use your spirit and your truth to bring us back so we would be working for your purposes rather than Satan's. Father, reading this final letter to the church, you know our own tendency to stray doctrinally from the things we first would affirm, but even more grievous to stray from the passion we had at first, not just for doctrine, but for Christ himself. We pray you would restore the love that we had at first for him. We pray you would keep us from having cold orthodoxy, standing up for what is true without having a true love for Christ. As we follow his design, as we obey his word, may it be with a heart of compassion and love for Christ, a heart of connection to him. And then in turn, would you use us to minister to the people who so desperately need to hear and to see the truth of Christ on display. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.